let's worship him church when all i see is the battle you see my victory There's nothing to fear now, for I am saved. If you believe those words, would you lift this up today? Yeah. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet, I'll sing through the night. Oh,
Is here. Yes, we 
worship King Jesus in this place. Jesus, we set our eyes on you. And when we look to you, we look to our living hope. We look to the hope of heaven. We look to your promises and your faithfulness. And so in this moment, let us lift up the name of Jesus over everything. Because he's worthy. Yes, I just want to speak the name of Jesus. Over every heart and every mind. Because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. This is what we came to do. I just want to speak the name of Jesus. Till every dark addiction starts to break. It's in your power, Lord. Declaring there is hope and there is freedom. I speak Jesus. Yes, your name.
just want to speak the name of Jesus. Would you tell him from your heart, church? Over every heart and every mind in you there's freedom, Jesus. Says I know there's peace within your presence. I speak Jesus. Yes, Lord, I speak Jesus. Yes. Cause how I long to breathe the air of heaven. My pain is gone. And mercy fills the streets To look upon the one who bled to save me And walk with him for all eternity You see, it all comes down to this church Cause there will be a day when all will bow before him Sons of faith, we sing through doubt and fear. Cause in the end, we'll see that it was worth it when He returns to wipe away our tears. Yes, and that day is coming with confidence. We know there will be a day when all will bow before Him. Yes, there will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with you died and rose again. Holy, holy is the Lord. Yes, we long for that day. We'll see you face to face, Lord. It's on that day. We join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. With one voice, a thousand generations sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen for that. Can we look that up again? And on that day, we join the resurrection. And stand beside the heroes of the faith With one voice, a thousand generations Sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain Forever, forever he shall Yeah. 
fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen for these light and momentary afflictions are working out for us a great eternal weight of glory that's what the Bible says and the moment is coming friends understand when you and I will say it didn't take too long it wasn't too much they really were light and momentary afflictions and now we have eternal life now we're in the Father's house now we're together forever hallelujah Lord Jesus we celebrate your victory this morning we celebrate what is unseen because we know that what is seen is passing and we look forward to the moment God when we'll glance back at these struggles and laugh (laughs) because they're over and we're free we worship you Lord we praise you this morning we give glory to you as your church your family your sons and daughters we pray it in Jesus name amen amen welcome this morning it's great to have you in second service welcome to everybody who's joining us on the live stream and online this morning would you take a moment and greet those around you make sure everybody feels welcome you do that Yeah, yeah, amen. Hey, hold, hold that for just a moment. Would you hold that for just a moment? Because we want to ask you, all veterans that are here with us this morning, any who are with us online, we want to ask you, please, if you would, to stand for a moment. I know you don't want to, but we want you to, so please do. Would you stand for a moment? Now let's celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> celebrate those who serve. 
Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. You know, we, we really cannot thank you enough. We can't thank those who have set aside their rights, their privileges, their prerogatives in order to serve us. And every Veterans Day, I'm reminded that Jesus gave his highest praise to a soldier. It was a Roman centurion to whom he said, I have not found such great faith in all Israel. And it was about that same kind of servant that Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for someone else. So thank you for giving your time, your efforts. We hope that you don't just feel that during Veterans Week. We hope that you feel that all year round um, because we, we, we couldn't thank you enough. It's great to see you. Welcome to Second Service this morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. It's hard to believe. Do you realize we're like 10 days from Thanksgiving? <laughs> like, how did that happen? Somebody said to me this morning, boy, once October hits, it's like fast forward right into the new year. And time, time is flying. You know, Thanksgiving is that holiday where we do a few things every year. We eat turkey. We gather together. We watch the Detroit Lions lose. That's every year. We just do that. It's a tradition. It's a beautiful thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but all my life I've been wa- watching the Lions lose on Thanksgiving. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember, we had those two police officers from Michigan, from Lansing, Michigan, who came out and shared with us, uh, talked about how Christ had, had worked in their lives. It was a neat Sunday morning, and they were both from there. So afterwards, we went out to lunch, and we were getting comfortable and everything. I said, fellas, I just got to ask you. <laughs> He said, what's it like to be a Detroit Lions fan on Thanksgiving? (laughs) He said, it's as bad as you think it is, only worse. (laughs) thought that was funny. But I hope you got great plans for Thanksgiving. I hope you're looking forward to it. A couple quick announcements before we open God's Word this morning. Uh, One of them is that a huge thanks uh, on behalf of the board of deacons of our church to our whole church. Um, this week we found out that the Plateau Outreach Ministries, uh, Pennies from Heaven downtown, that whole ministry that uh, runs the, the primary food bank in our community, uh, they let it be known that their food bank was almost empty heading into Thanksgiving and Christmas, really their busiest time. And uh, they were out of food to give uh, right at the edge, nowhere close to ready for it. And so they put out a call and asked for donations. And your, your board of deacons heard that call. And this week, because because MRCC is so faithful, so relentlessly faithful in giving, uh, we just gave the food bank $10,000 to restock and get through Thanksgiving and Christmas. So hallelujah. Yeah. Every time each one of us, me, you, every time we give, it makes all those things possible. So thank you for being so faithful. You know, through this pandemic, so many of us moved to giving online, and that's great. Actually, it makes our bookkeeper really happy because it makes everything easy. Uh, but the bottom line is that we're able to do things like that. So so huge thanks to you for that. Um, second thing uh, is that this morning is uh, our, our final day to bring our shoebox Christmas boxes back. Uh, they'll actually be uh, sent out around the world this week. And if you haven't got your shoebox back, hundreds of people, have, but if you haven't returned your shoebox yet, you forgot again or just too busy, uh, you can drop it by the office up until Wednesday, but then on Wednesday, it literally leaves the country. So uh, if you forgot or didn't get around to it, meant to, uh, you can still bring it by the office uh, up until Wednesday. We'd love to hear from you. What a huge blessing it is, Uh, and every year uh, we get to be part of that as a church. So Operation Shoebox winding up, and then the last one. Um, This this coming Saturday is is a really important day, and I want to ask for your help. 
Um, as probably a lot of us know, most of us know that every year MRCC gives a Christmas gift to our community, and that's our, our synchronized Christmas light show. It covers the whole campus, all the buildings. Uh, we put it up at Thanksgiving, take it down right after the new year, and in between, every night, it's available. Uh, when I leave the office very often in December, the parking lot's full <laughs> of people watching the Christmas light show. So uh, we're getting ready for that. This coming Saturday is our setup Saturday. Uh, and so from 9 to 12, uh, we're going to be putting up the Christmas lights for this year's program. Uh, Rich Van Dam and his team, they've got it down to a science after all these years. And, and so you and I can just show up with our work clothes on and they'll put us to work. They'll send us out to, to do everything that needs to be done. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, we knocked it out, I think, last year, the entire setup in like two and a half hours. Uh, and then the entire teardown, I think it was a record, it was like 92 minutes uh, last year, but for the setup, it's this Saturday. Can you come down and join us from 9 to 12? Bring your kids, bring your grubbies. Uh, the leadership team will, will put you to work. You don't have to know a lot. Bring a ladder if you have one. Uh, bring your gloves, and we'll get that Christmas lights display up uh, this Saturday for this year. Now, um, some of you are wondering, hey, Pastor Greg, <laughs> if you're putting the lights up on Saturday, those are Christmas decorations, and it's not Thanksgiving. So let me set your soul at ease. We're going to put it all together on Saturday, but we won't flip the power switch till after Thanksgiving. So you can rest in that, right? You can rest in that and know that. But anyway, this Saturday from 9 to 12, hope you can come and join us. We'll have donuts and coffee and all that kind of stuff. We'll have a, a lunch for you when you're done. So um, this week, uh, hope you can come and join us. Okay, grab your Bible if you would, friends, and open it to Romans chapter 9. Uh, and this morning, we're going to do the second of, of this three-week series called God's Sick. You remember that, that last week, we began to learn what, what God sick means. It's when we don't understand God's priorities. It's when we don't live according to what he tells us is most important in the moment. You'll remember we heard Jesus say that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in just a sweeping statement, he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, get these two things right, Greg, and you're in the center of my will miss these two things and it doesn't matter how many other things you get right you're you're missing it you're outside of my will for you and and to be god sick is to 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 think of ourselves as godly but to not be living according to his priorities the second week i want to talk to you about the second part of that let me begin by asking a question and that's this have you ever been guilty of trying too hard? I mean, raise your hand if you're one of those people, right? Like when, when things get difficult, my first default tends to be, I gotta try harder at this. Uh, the old saying, work smarter, not harder, applies to me. <laughs> my wife says that to me on, on multiple occasions. Trying too hard is something that most of us tend to, and sometimes it becomes the greatest obstacle to what we're trying to achieve. And I remember many years ago when I was stationed in Iceland and I was part of a small detachment of Marines and really our focus was to do kind of ceremonial stuff for the most part. Yeah, we were sentries at a few posts, but really what we did was show up at, at important events and look pretty. That was what we were there for. And so there was one of these events coming up. It was actually one of the first ones that I was a part of there. And some Icelandic government officials were going to be there and some American dignitaries and European dignitaries. And we're supposed to get all dressed up in our dress blues and line up. And they were going to walk in front of us in kind of a, a sort of an inspection. It was just, you know, part of the pageantry. 
And I was so determined to do this right, right? And so what they tell you is that you're supposed to be totally impassive. You've seen these kinds of things on TV. You just stand there at attention and you get your thousand yard stare going and nothing affects you, right? You're just like furniture in the moment. Well, I was determined to do that right and do that well. So uh, if you picture the line of Marines and the government folks are walking down and the CO is doing a little light inspection and I'm standing there and I'm trying so hard to do this right. And I'm trying so hard that I actually started to, to lean forward, like out of the line, if you can picture this. And then somehow I got turned sideways. So I'm leaning forward like this. You just picture what this looks like, right? And I don't even know it because I'm trying so hard. And all of a sudden, this party that was just supposed to walk past us, walk past me, they stopped. And one of them, came, I'm like, oh no, what's going on? And my first sergeant, with a funny look on his face, he just reached out, took my shoulders, pushed me back in place, <laughs> turned and walked on. I thought to myself, did I just do that? What an idiot, you know? trying too hard. Now, the good news is I didn't get in trouble for it because another guy, two guys down from me had been in a rush that morning, couldn't find his t-shirt, wore a Led Zeppelin t-shirt under his uniform instead, and he got all the heat and I got off scot-free, but he wasn't trying too hard, uh, but I was. Maybe you've been in that place before. Most of us have a tendency to try too hard sometimes especially when we're passionate about something, and especially when we believe that the outcome depends on us. But ironically, sometimes it's the trying too hard that, that causes the outcome to fail. You know, my, my two favorite sports are, are, are soccer and basketball. My brother played football and baseball, and those are, those are kind of two different categories of sport. I, I think of football and baseball, they're kind of like symphonies. You know, you have plays, you execute specific movements, you, you do things in a very structured, purposeful, specific way. Soccer and basketball are, are a lot more like jazz. You know, you're always improvising and freewheeling and working as a group, and, and it depends on sort of this, this zen that occurs inside of everybody's heads when you're playing. And I make the distinction between those two things for this reason. The very worst thing you can do in soccer and basketball is try too hard. <laughs> because what you do is you not only get in your own way, you get in everybody else's way. Those sports are about rhythm and spacing and flow and anticipation. And it's the same with our walk with God. Very often we reduce our walk with him to executing a series of plays instead of living in friendship with our creator God. And this second aspect of God's sake we're going to talk about this morning has to do with what happens when we try too hard. Let me just ask you, do you try too hard at your faith? Here's the test. Do you spend most of the time frustrated with yourself? Do you spend most of your time joyfully celebrating your life with God? Or do you spend most of your time trying to be worthy of it? <laughs> See, there's a difference between those things. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you put your joy in your faith? Would you put it down towards the bottom? Would you put it up towards the top? If it's down towards the bottom, very likely the reason is because you're trying too hard. Now, the very idea that we can try too hard at our faith flies in the face of a lot of our assumptions 
about life with God. And that's why Jesus told stories like the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Remember that one? Some people work hard all day, some half a day, some only the last hour of the day. And yet the master's generous and gracious and gives everybody the same pay. Or Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. You remember that one? The one son goes off and blows his inheritance and, and ruins uh, his future. And the other son stays home. He's diligent. He's hardworking. He's committed. He's faithful. And yet when the first son, the younger son, comes home, the father celebrates and the older son gets angry and says, hey, I've been trying really hard. Haven't you noticed? See, Jesus tells those stories because trying too hard can make us God sick. It can cause us to live not out of love and joy in who God is, but out of our own endless expectations of ourselves and others. Let's, let's listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this. Romans 9, I ask you to turn there. Verses 30, we're going to go on down through chapter 10, verse 4. Listen to what he says. He says, what then shall we say? He's making this argument about the gospel being about what God does for us, not what we do for him. And he says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who did not pursue righteousness. Stop and think about that for a moment. Many of us think righteousness is something we pursue and obtain by pursuit. The Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness, the word means an intimacy with God, a close friendship with God, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, the nation that thought of itself as godly, Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. They tried really hard. The Gentiles didn't try really hard. The Gentiles obtained righteousness because it was by faith. Israel did not attain righteousness because they thought the key was their effort. Paul says, why not? Why did they not attain it? Catch this. Because they pursued it not by faith, by believing, but as if it were by works, that is by effort. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's a reference to a specific prophecy, messianic prophecy about Jesus, which Paul then goes on to quote from Isaiah. He says, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion, Zion's another word for Israel, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble. God, why would you do that? And a rock that makes them fall. But the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Circle that word, trust. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In other words, the Jews were trying too hard. They believed that their trying was the key to their relationship with God. Grasp this. Paul is saying that chasing God, friends hear me, that chasing God is the reason some people never find him. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Did you just say that? Yes, I did. Because that's what the Bible is making clear to us. We say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the scripture say, for example, back in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart? Yes, it does. Absolutely. Didn't Jesus say, seek and you will find? Yes, he did. But there's a difference between chasing something for the joy of it, for the love of it, and chasing something in order to prove something. 
Let me help you understand the difference. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus said this. He said, the kingdom of God, that is the experience of intimacy, friendship, relationship with God as my leader, my father, the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. Now that's not the point, that's the setup. When a man found it, in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. He didn't say to himself, here's an opportunity for me to prove that I'm smarter than everybody else. That wasn't his motivation. His motivation wasn't to to succeed over his neighbor. His motivation was his joy. In his joy, he went and sold everything that he had. So, So could we say he tried hard? Yes. But it's a different kind of trying. It's a response to what he's found. It's a celebrating of what he's discovered. This isn't work. This is thanksgiving. This is joy. This is rejoicing. The gospel is about that treasure. And it is about the discovery that it can be had for nothing, which then causes us to choose to surrender all to experience the fullness of it. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, a man will do far more from gratitude than he'll ever do from duty. And that's the secret of the gospel. Paul goes on in that passage in Romans, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, those who were trying so hard, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Think of that. They thought of themselves as God's people, but because of their intense effort, the wrong kind of effort, the trying too hard, because of that, they actually had ceased to be. He says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. Oh man, do they get intense. But, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. They try hard, but they have no idea what they're doing. And then he says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God. There's a difference between a righteousness that comes from me and one that comes from God. Since they didn't know the righteousness that comes from God, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Why? Instead, they tried to establish their own by effort. But he says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness, friendship with God for everyone who believes. In other words, the way to friendship with God doesn't depend on my zeal, but his. Take that in for a moment because it makes all the difference in your soul, in my spirit, in our hearts, the place from which we live and and do everything else. The way to friendship with God doesn't depend on your zeal, but on his. You know, it's like this with our kids, right? When they're small, we seek relationship with them. They don't really know how to work hard at relationship with us. It just flows out of response to what we're seeking in them. I remember a few Christmas, uh, a bunch of Christmases ago when our son was a toddler. And at Christmas time, uh, Isaiah got this, uh, this wooden uh, train set uh, with pieces and little town and all this kind of stuff. And he, he was so excited about it, but there was a million things going on, so he's just on to the next toy. And 
By the time things settled down in the evening, I said, hey, Isaiah, you want to set up your train? He says, yeah. So we went into his bedroom and we took it out of the box and we set up his train. And I thought, this is just going to be a golden moment with my son. And he started to push the train around the track. And I said, isn't that cool? And then I started to try and make a story about it. Well, there's a man that needs to be picked. He didn't want nothing of that. He just wanted to keep going around and around the track. And after about his 10th time around the track, I'm like, hey, do you want to? No, he wanted to keep going around and around the track. At this point, dad's starting to get bored. (laughs) Dad's like, we got to do more with this. Let's make a story. Let's turn it. Let's have Godzilla attack the train track and we defend it. Nope, he just wants to go round and round and round and round. And there came a moment in all of that when I said, you know what, I'm just going to let this be because this is all he knows. And so he rounded, I don't know where this came from, but it went on for like 20 minutes. And then he suddenly stopped, crawled up in my lap and fell asleep. And we spent the next hour of Christmas with my son sleeping in my lap. And I sat there the whole time and I thought, this is why I came in here to be with him because I'm seeking this kind of relationship with him. God is the same way with you and I. He he wants us to understand that he's seeking us more than we're seeking him. Paul talks about the Israelites, and he, he describes their zeal without knowledge. In other words, they were trying hard without knowing what they're doing. I read a story this week about a man who was involved in a car accident. His daughter was trapped inside the car. There was a fire. It was dangerous. He was desperate to get her out of the car. The car was laying on its side in a ditch. He pulled so hard on the car door in an effort to open the car that he broke his back. Now, the good news is firefighters, paramedics showed up. They were able to rescue the girl. They were able to put out the fire. Um, There was just broken bones. Everybody lived to tell the tale. But the interesting part of the story was that the firefighters explained that when they uh, examined what had happened in the situation and how this man had broke his back, they found out because of his boot prints that he was pulling with all his might to open a door he was standing on. Now, his desire was intense. He had zeal, but he had lost touch with knowledge. And God says that happens to us sometimes. We forget what matters most to him in the moment. And we try hard, but we're actually standing on the door we're seeking to open. Paul instead, by contrast, describes a righteousness that comes from God, not one that comes from our efforts, but comes from his desire for us. I remember when I was courting Rhonda and I had all these fantasies that I was going to create the perfect dates, the perfect gifts, the perfect letters, the perfect conversations, the perfect experiences together, and that somehow I was going to win her by my efforts. Now, all these years later, I realized that at some point in all of that, despite all of that, she just chose me. She just chose me. And in fact, half of the things I did probably got in the way and prevented her from choosing me. But eventually, she just chose me. God wants you and me to know that it's not what we do that causes him to choose us. It's who he is. Let me ask you again. How much of your walk with God is a frustrated effort to try harder? In discipleship class, membership class every year, we talk about something called the endless self-improvement agenda that many of us live with. We just have this list of ways that we're desperately seeking to be better, but we're seeking it 
to prove ourselves instead of seeking it in joyful response to the fact that God loves us. The Apostle Paul is explaining that the problem with the Jewish people of his day is that their thinking about how to pursue God was all wrong. They thought of it as mountain climbing. When really what it is is rolling downhill with him. I like to spring this question on people sometimes. How much gas does it take to get from the top of Snoqualmie Pass to Issaquah? I'll ask this question. Do you know what the answer is? None. You turn left and put it in neutral. It's downhill all the way. You roll the whole way. And the gospel is like that. We turn left, we turn to Christ, and then we roll downhill with him. Let me ask you this morning, as we turn the corner in our message, are you climbing up to God or rolling downhill with him? You know, there's a beautiful moment in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 51, that, uh, that just always gets me excited because it's the fruit of, of serious Bible study. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 51 is a passage I must have read through uh, a million times in, in the first part of my faith, my walk with Christ. I never really understood what it was about. I kind of thought to myself, huh, what does that mean? And then just kept moving. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 1, verse 51. He said, I tell you the truth, speaking to his disciples, He said, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you're like me, maybe you read that in your Bible and you go, wow, Jesus says weird things sometimes. You just keep moving. But there's actually a rich history to that moment. Let me help you understand it. Way back in Genesis chapter 28, there's a story of a man named Jacob who was experiencing the consequences of a lot of poor choices. And he found himself in the wilderness by himself without hope or prospects. And he, he, he laid down even without a tent and rested his head on a rock. That was all he had for a pillow. And he had a dream. And the dream that he had was from God because little did he know Long ago, God had chosen to seek him way before he had chosen to seek God. And the dream that Jacob had, we call it Jacob's ladder, in his dream he saw a vision of a ladder descending from the heavens and angels were coming down the ladder and going up it. Now here's why that vision was so significant. At that time, in the Near East, religions taught that man must climb up to God. And you can see the evidence of that to this day. They're what are called ziggurats. You know what ziggurats are? Those pyramids with steps. The idea was that if you wanted to get serious about God, then you would climb those steps up to meet with God. It was a difficult, demanding climb. Jacob has a vision in which God says, I'm going to climb down to you, Jacob. Right here in the wilderness, right here in the middle of nowhere, I climb down to you. You don't climb up to me. Jesus grabs that story that he knows his audience knows. And he says, in me, Jacob's ladder happens. God climbs down to you. God climbs down to Greg. God climbs down to Rhonda. God climbs down to us. Friends, when we're God-sick, we think of climbing up to him. That's what the Jews did. But the reality is that God climbs down to us. And this is incredibly important to understand because the difference between those two knowledges, those two understandings, is that one makes our zeal precious and one makes our zeal tragic. You see, when we believe that we, we climb up 
to God, then we treat ourselves and others and even God himself with a kind of simmering, relentless anger. We end up angry about everything. In fact, we end up believing that it's our faith that's making us angry and therefore our anger is legitimate. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 20, that man's anger does not bring about the righteous life God desires. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, hey, don't even let the sun go down on your anger. You're feeling anger, get rid of it by the end of the day. And then he warns in verse 27, if you don't, you'll give the devil a foothold in your life. But God's sick people believe that it's their faith that's making them angry, and therefore their anger is legitimate. And their anger just grows and festers and spreads. It's an anger at others, it's an anger at themselves, and it's an anger at God. Let me talk about that for just a moment. Climbers, those who believe we climb up to God, the God-sick are always a little upset with their fellow believers because they're not living up to their expectations. Peter was like that. At the Last Supper, he said to Jesus, Lord, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, I have really low expectations of these guys, and they're not even meeting those. But you can count on me to meet your expectations. Of course, in a matter of hours, Peter would betray Jesus to his face. So what he believed about himself wasn't true. But what he believed about himself made him angry at his fellow believers. And later that night, it made him angry at Jesus' enemies as well. The scripture says when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter whipped out his sword and attacked God's sick people, because they believe their anger is justified by their faith, become killers of their enemies. When Peter took that sword out and struck the servant of the high priest, the scripture says Jesus told him, stop. In the Greek, it's emphatic. Knock it off. And he knelt down and he restored the man's ear. And then he allowed himself to be arrested because he knew that God works more powerfully through the cross than a sword. God's sick people lose touch with that. Climbers are not only angry at others, they're angry at themselves because deep down they know they're failing to meet their own expectations. And so as I said, they go around with this endless self-improvement agenda. I remember a man, I'll call him Bill, not his name. He was part of the first church that I pastored many years ago in Lacey. I was his pastor for about three and a half years. We were friends. We did a lot of things together. We spent time together. We prayed together. We worshiped together. The time came when Ron and I were moving to Idaho to serve a different church, and it was our last Sunday, and And Bill came up to me with tears on his face. He said, Pastor Greg, I have to tell you something. And and he he was so ashamed. He said, it's something I've never told you. I've hidden it from you. and, And I need to tell you before you leave. And he said, for all these last three years, I've been wrestling with my smoking habit. I haven't been able to kick it yet. And he sobbed. And I thought to myself in, in that moment, Bill, you thought this would come between us all this time? Are you kidding? We're friends. You've been carrying this all this time? And I thought of how much anger he had turned towards himself over those three and a half years, and he didn't need to feel any of it. We're all sinners learning how to not be sinners. Amen? But see, that's what happens when we believe that climbing is how we get to God. That's what happened to Bill. God's sake, people live with a secret anger and despair over themselves. They think of themselves as hypocrites. And as a consequence, here's the really sad thing. All their attention is focused on themselves. So they're trying to fix themselves. They're trying to improve themselves, trying to grow up, to climb up next to God. Finally, 
climbers are not only angry with others and angry with themselves, they're angry with God because he's too lenient. I mentioned that parable of the workers in the vineyard. God gives a full day's pay to some people who lazed about most of the day and only worked an hour at the end. He says, I want to do this because I'm gracious. I want to do this because I'm more about relationship than I am just getting things done. I want to do this, but the workers who'd been there all day complained. They were angry. And in the parable, the master gives this tremendous response. He says, are you envious because I'm generous? And he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Guys, you think of yourselves as hard workers, as climbers, and therefore first in line. But it's the things of the heart that I look on. It's the things of the heart that I'm seeking. The truth is, you've spent the whole day angrily resenting, not serving for love and joy. Worst of all, maybe, is that if you're a climber, you get a little more proud every time you climb a little higher. And you start to think of yourself as a better person than others, a better believer, or just a better man or woman. Scripture tells us about a man named Simon in Luke chapter 7. He was a successful leader of devoted religious people. He invited Jesus to his house for dinner because that's what he thought of himself as, the kind of person who invites Jesus for dinner. But in the middle of that exclusive dinner party, a woman showed up who hadn't been invited and who was, in fact, not popular, not well thought of, not respected. In fact, she was the opposite of all those things. The scripture says she had lived a sinful life in that town. We don't know the details. We know that everybody knew her. And, and the scripture says she knelt at Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair and her tears, washing them. There's some background to that. Typically, when you went to somebody's house, household servant will meet you at the door, wash your feet. So when everybody sits down at the dinner table, they've got clean feet, which is a good thing because the table's like that far off the ground and you're all laying around it. But when Simon saw her doing that, Scripture says he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. In other words, in that moment, he who thought of himself as the most godly of men became a critic of God and a doubter of God's ways precisely because he had climbed so high and Jesus called him on it. He said, Simon, when I came to your house, you didn't have anybody to wash my feet, but She's doing it with her hair and her tears. And then he said something to him that always challenges me. He said, Simon, he who has been forgiven little loves little. They may try hard. They may be zealous. They may be passionate. But they love little. Jesus said, this woman who's washing my feet. She loves much because she knows that she's been forgiven much. There is in that moment a subtle rebuke that Jesus is giving to Simon. He's saying, you don't think you need to be forgiven much. That's why you love little. You're pretty sure you're beyond that. You've climbed so high that you don't think of yourself as needing the grace of God. He says, as a consequence, you're God sick. I think of a young lady... Uh, at the church that we served in Moscow, Idaho, college town. She was a college student. I'll call her Amanda, not her name. And when Amanda first came to church, it was obvious that she lived a sinful life. And when she received Jesus as her Savior, that was an amazing, awesome time.
time. But then the struggle began as she sought to unlearn a, a lifestyle uh, that, that was the only thing she'd ever known. And for the next several years, Amanda struggled deeply. We had many conversations, many times of prayer, a lot of learning, a lot of three steps forward, two steps back, as she grew into her new faith. It was a challenge. But here's the thing about Amanda. Every single Sunday that Amanda came to church, it seemed like every Sunday, she brought somebody new. She was just grabbing people right and left. She meets somebody in the door, got to come to church with me. She meets somebody in class, got to come to church with me. Meets somebody at the mall, oh, hey, come to church with me. Meets two homeless guys by the bus station downtown. She brought them to church, need to bring them to church. And she would always, Pastor Greg, I want you to meet my new friends. And relentlessly, over and over. And I would think to myself, Amanda, we just talked this week about your struggles. That's what I'm thinking in my head. But she sees further than me. She's thinking, oh no, I want somebody else to meet him. I want somebody else to meet him. She loved much. And, and during those next couple of years, she, by the way, the end of her story is a beautiful one. She's a successful big city attorney in another town now. But over those next couple of years, I would watch lots of people in our church like Simon who never brought anybody who didn't seem to have neighbors or friends or co-workers or fellow students. Never brought anybody with them. But Amanda, anybody she ran into, she was likely to drag to church. I thought to myself, how much joy is Jesus taking in her? Because she gets that it's what God, it's God's zeal for her, not her zeal for him. We're almost done this morning, friends. Let me ask you again, are you trying too hard? Are you trying too hard it's a temptation for all of us. It's a temptation for me. It's a temptation for you. Back in Genesis chapter 15, two stories and we're done. Back in Genesis chapter 15, there's the story of a man named Abraham who the Apostle Paul throughout Romans is going to say is the picture of our saving faith. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when God begins his mission in the world, uh, Abraham believes what God has called him to. And as a consequence of that, the Bible says... Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, simply because Abraham believed what God was saying and who God is, God said, you're my friend. You have righteousness. I'm giving it to you. Now, right after that, there's a, another one of those moments that, that rewards serious Bible study because the scripture says that God set up a, a covenant with Abraham. He went through a little process with him and the covenant would have been intimately familiar to everybody who, who read it in those days. And let me describe it for you. When two people made a covenant in those days, a business agreement, family covenant, whatever it was, when they made a covenant, they had a process for sort of publicly solemnizing the, the, the covenant. What they would do is you would take a couple of animals that were sacrificed and then you would go to the city gates. You would place the animals. You'd cut the animals in half, put one half here, one half here. By the way, it's just dinner before you cook it. They would put that there and then the two people who were making the covenant would walk between the two pieces of, of meat. There usually be two or three animals that had been sacrificed. They'd walk between them and they would publicly proclaim at the city gate to everybody who was listening, may it be to me as it is to these animals if I do not remain faithful to this covenant. Okay? It's kind of a serious, kind of makes signing your mortgage a little more tame, doesn't it, right? They would walk through that, and then they would say publicly, we're, we're bound to this covenant. Well, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make covenant with you, and they go through that whole process. They set up the animals, 
And then something incredibly significant happens. You can read it yourself, Genesis 15. Then the scripture says, Abraham sat down and only God walked between the pieces. In other words, God made a covenant with Abraham that totally depended on God, not Abraham. Abraham doesn't walk through in agreement. God swears by himself. God makes a covenant that doesn't depend on Abraham holding up his end of the bargain. It's exactly a picture of what Jesus does on the cross for us. He takes on himself our sins. And he doesn't say to us, now if you hold up your end of the bargain, then we'll have righteousness. He says, you know what? I'm going to hold up the whole bargain. And as a consequence of me holding it up, you're going to have friendship with me. People who are healthy in Christ, they know this. So like Amanda, all they want to do is share it. (laughs) But when we get God sick, all we're focused on is our own efforts. Many of us live in that place, and God wants to set us free from it. Let me finish with a final story. When I was pastoring in Lacey, uh, there was a man in our church. He was uh, one of the ushers, sweet guy. His name was Chuck. And in those days, uh, I was always about vintage pickup trucks. I had a whole series of them. I loved restoring them. and I loved putting them back in stock condition. I wanted to get them back to what they looked like when they rolled off the showroom floor. Most of my trucks were late 50s, early 60s trucks. And at that time, I had a 66 Chevy that I had begun to work on. Chuck became aware of this because he was a, a truck nerd too. He started asking me about it. And then, as it turned out, Chuck ran a body shop in town kind of a high-end body shop. He did a lot of big deal work. And one Sunday, he came up to me after church. He said, Pastor Greg, I know you're working on that new truck. He says, I'd like to paint your truck for you. I'd like to do all the body work. You know, it had a wooden bed. It was a 66 Chevy fleet side, three-speed on the column, uh, for those of you who are nerds. He says, I'd like to do your truck for you. I said, what do you mean, for free? He says, yeah. I just want to do it for you. Oh, Chuck, I said. I reacted like probably you would. I said, Chuck, I can't let you do that. Are you crazy? That's like $10,000, and this was a lot of years ago. I said, I can't have you do that. He goes, no, no, it's no big deal. I want to do it. I said, oh, Chuck, I can't let you do that. I said, I can make you a deal. How about if I pay for all the materials, you know, and you can do the labor? He says, no, I want to do it for nothing. Said, Chuck, I can't do that. I mean, that's just too much. I can't let you give me that. The next Sunday... He came up to me after church. He said, well, you had a week to think about it. You ready to let me do your truck? I was like, Chuck, I can't do that. Are you crazy? That's nuts. I said, hey, are you ready to let me pay for it? He said, no. (laughs) Okay. And then this started a routine where every Sunday at some point during the morning, Chuck would come up to me and go, so, Pastor Greg, you ready to let me paint your truck? And I treated it as kind of a a laugh it off thing. Every Sunday I say, Chuck, you ready to let me pay for it? No, he said, I'm not ready to let you pay for it. I said, no, I'm not ready to let you paint my truck. This went on for like six months. just became a Sunday morning thing. Me and Chuck were going to laugh about it. Until one Sunday, when Chuck came towards me after service, only this time, he was crying. Like really crying. And he could barely speak it out. But he said, Pastor Greg, why won't you let me paint your truck? And in the moment that I saw his tears, I realized, oh my goodness, he's just trying to love me. He's just trying to give me a gift. And all this time, because of my pride and my ego and 
I just wasn't letting him. The guy just wants to love me. The guy really likes me. <laughs> and he just wants to do this for me. And then, one of only the three or four times in my life, I cried too. I cried with him. Most people say, Pastor Greg never cries. Well, I cry over trucks. So there you go. And I said, okay, I'll let you paint my truck. We have a picture of it here somewhere. Chuck went to work on it, and oh my goodness, you know, the interior was gold and white. The bed was refinished wood. It was spectacular. Chrome, everything that was could have been chrome stock, and tracked down the original wheels and hubcaps. It was amazing. And he gave it to me. To this day, I've never paid Chuck a penny. But I will always love Chuck. <laughs> because he painted my truck? Not really. Because I know Chuck loves me. And that's what God wants you to feel. That's what God wants us to feel. Because when we do, we don't try too hard. Now we just say thank you over and over and over again. Whenever I see Chuck now, which is not often, but rarely, I'm like, Chuck, you're awesome. I love you. That's the gospel. That's what God wants you to feel. Would you close your head? Uh, close your eyes, bow your head with me, please. Close your head too if you need to, whatever works. Yeah. Let me just ask you, as your fellow human being, are you trying too hard at your walk with God? And are you doing that because you think that it's about climbing mountains, it's about climbing up to Him instead of Him climbing down to you? If you are, it's going to make you angry. It's going to make you angry at others, angry at yourself. It's going to make you angry at God. It's going to make you proud. God wants to deliver you from all that. Will you let him climb down to you? Maybe you've never received Jesus as your Savior. You don't know God as your Father. And you've always thought that you couldn't until you climbed up to him. The gospel is about him coming for you. And he seeks you right here and right now. And you can say yes to him in your heart. And he will hear that. And he will adopt you as his daughter, his son. You will be born again in this moment when you say yes to him because it's always been about him seeking you. You can do that right here and right now. Maybe you did that a long time ago, but somewhere along the line, you lost touch with the fact that it's about his zeal for you, not yours for him. God wants you right now to once again remember your first love by surrendering your future, your salvation to your Savior. To give it back to Him and just to say thank you. To say, yes, God, I'll let you paint my truck and I'll just say thank you. God wants to renew the joy of your salvation in this moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that as we go from here, it would be always remembering your gospel is about you seeking us and us saying thanks. We pray for that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you, would you stand with me, friends? I talk too long. The parking lot's getting crowded. This afternoon, when our Seahawks are getting absolutely destroyed by the Packers, <laughs> remember that it's not about what we do. It's about what God does for us. Now may the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit go with you throughout this week. Go with God. Tell someone you love them. Have a great afternoon.